Well, it's good to be together this weekend, and I just got to say, a week ago, I ended the service, as all services with this word, hey, root for my cubbies, because we were down 3-1, and we needed a lot of help, and so can you believe it? I almost had a nervous breakdown, heart attack. I don't know what it was. I was in Dallas. Lori was up in Minnesota, and I was just telling her, in case I die of a heart attack, I want you to know I love you with all my heart. Anyways, it was awesome. Go Cubs, go. They finally did it. I can hardly believe it. But anyways, thanks for rooting for the Cubbies. And if you didn't, sorry. Sorry. I get it. So if you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. In fact, if you are here at at the Sprecher campus in live, you're going, why are you on video? I thought this was live. Well, it's because once a year, the first weekend of November, I get away with the leadership of our church, godly women and men and their spouses. And we're gathered over in Lake Geneva to pray for the church, to just seek God together, to play together and just grow deeper. Um, And so that's what we're doing. And we're praying for you even as we gather this weekend. So we're continuing our series, Unexpected, The Life of Abraham and Sarah. There's this guy, Roger Boys Julie, I don't know if you've heard of him. He was uh, a rocket engineer for NASA at this company called Morton Theocol. He worked in Utah, but it was all about the shuttle back in 1986. This shuttle that tragically exploded shortly after liftoff. He found disturbing data about these seals that he discovered when the temperatures were cold, they would become brittle and they would not hold. And so he started sounding the warning bells six months before. And to his horror, on January 28th, the weather report was that that the temperature down at Cape Canaveral was going to be like 30 degrees. And so he and a couple other engineers are saying, please don't, please don't, please don't. Three weeks after the tragic events of that day, an interviewer from NPR off the record heard him say, I fought like you know what to stop that launch. I'm so torn up inside, I can hardly even talk about it even now. Ignoring a warning is a really dangerous thing to do. Have you ever ignored a warning? There's all kinds of warnings, right? Mom and dad gave us warnings. A friend maybe has given us a warning. Maybe there's been a whistleblower in your business who sounded the alarm. Maybe you've been just glossing over that printed warning on the label of that little package. You know what I'm talking about. All kinds of warning. Warning. The speed zone is enforced by radar, right, or aircraft. They're the warnings of conscience. They're the warnings like we have today from God's word. God's word that reminds us that God alone rescues us. And so don't, don't look to anyone else when you're in the face of hard things and ultimately God's judgment. So grab your Bible. Genesis 19 is where we're at. It's the second half 
of Genesis 18. Genesis 18, if you remember, God visits Abraham and he tells him all about what's going to happen that year, that Sarah, now almost 90, is going to have a son. And remember how she laughs, just like Abraham laughed in chapter 17. And God was really, remember he, he was extending grace as the, as the questions went up before him. He was extending grace to Sarah. He was extending grace to Abraham. And then he tells Abraham, not just what's going to happen to them and having this child, but what's going to happen about some of the things that he's heard about down in Sodom and Gomorrah, where the cries of the oppressed had come before him in heaven. And he was sending the two angels to visit and to check it out. And so we pick up chapter 19 with the visitors, these two angels, coming to inspect the conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a rescue story. Some of you who hear the word Sodom and Gomorrah go, oh, oh, oh I know what this is about. Man, I hope he hits that homosexuality thing. Look, it's, it's not about homosexuality. It's actually not about the lack of hospitality. The reason we know this is there's two places in the New Testament, both Jesus in Luke 17 and Peter in 2 Peter 2, they talk about this very passage. Peter reminds us it's a rescue story that God knows how to rescue the righteous from trials and God's judgment as he did for Lot back here in Genesis 19. Jesus reminds us the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot are going to be like the, the days at the end of the day before Jesus comes back as judge. And he sounds the warning that don't turn back. Keep going forward in faith. God alone rescues us. God alone is our Savior. And so if he is, we're not looking for anyone else. We read this in chapter 19, verses 1, reading down to verse 3. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now, we've just been noticing how Lot's position alongside of it first in chapter 13, in the city walls in chapter 14, and now he's seated in the gate. So some of us a year ago were in Tel Dan, this ancient city, and we could see some of the old gateways. And in the, in the inside part of the gate, there was this stone bench. That's where the leaders would sit, the elders of the city, and, and they would deliberate there. And, and he's now sitting in the gate. And we just notice where he is. It kind of reminds us of Psalm 1, right? Blessed is man who does not walk, right? Who does not stand in the way of sinners. The one who does not sit in the council of the ungodly, of the mockers. And here he is. He's sitting. So we read on. When he saw them, that is the two angels, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. Why are they going to spend the night in the square? Because God has sent them on a mission to see if the cries of the oppressed have warrant. 
Is it really happening? They're going to camp themselves in the middle of the square. But Lot knows that would not be a good thing. So verse 3, he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them. Sounds a lot like chapter 18 when Abraham's preparing a meal for the Lord and the two angels, right? He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. We read on, verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Lot had an idea this could happen. That's why he was insisting strongly that they don't stay. So they surrounded the house, right? Verse 5. They called a lot. You hear him banging on the door. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex, literally so that we can know them. So here's the question. Is this the sexual relationships that are described in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son? Or, or is this the kind of knowing of just kind of, hey, we just want to get to know you, extend warm hospitality? Well, the text is going to make it clear what's going on here. They called a lot, verse 5. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Okay, he's calling it a wicked thing. Extending hospitality is not a wicked thing. I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. He's talking about sexual relationships relative to his daughters. We're going to get to this crazy part in just a minute. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. That would be part of extending hospitality in that day, that you would protect them. So it's sexual here. He calls it wicked. The daughters haven't had sex. And the people say to him in verse 9, Get out of our way, they reply. This fellow came here, speaking of Lot, as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. What is he judging him About their immoral actions, right? Not about their inhospitable nature, right? We'll treat you worse than them, the daughters. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. So it's about sensuality. It's about, it's the description of, of gang rape that anybody in that day or today would go, that is wrong, that is wicked. Whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, that, that is just so beyond the pale. And, and we're reading this and we're going, did it just say what it said about Lot? Did Lot actually get to the point to save these guys he's never met before, to save them that he would give his, is that really what happened? On the one hand, we know the Bible never sugarcoats the weakness and the sin of even those that the Bible would call righteous. And this is one of the things we got to remember. Is 2 Peter 2 tells us that Lot was a righteous man. Now remember Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham is considered righteous because he trusted in God. He took God at his word. Not because he was without sin. 
So what we know about Lot from the New Testament, we certainly don't get it right here, is he's a righteous man who's trusting in God. But man, what do we do here? Well, one of the commentators I read this week said, actually, he's, he's just saying, look, you guys, I'm pleading with you, and I'm going to give you just a crazy example to kind of bring you back to your senses. Of course, you wouldn't do this to my daughters like you wouldn't want it done to your daughters. He's trying to startle them back into reality and to appeal to their any vestige of morality that was left, or maybe not. Maybe it just shows us just the craziness, even this man's heart. So we come to the first rescue. Because this, this first part is all about God rescuing. Look at verse 10. But the men inside, that is the angels, right? Reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Did you see it? They, they just opened the door a little bit. They grab him and they pull him in. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. So there's this burst of light. I don't know what it is. We don't know. Is it like what happened when, when Saul, Paul, met Christ and he was blinded, right, on his way to Damascus? Well, we don't know. All we know is they're prevented from getting into the house. The first rescue. And he yanked him back. And here's what we know about Sodom and Gomorrah so far. Chapter 13, we know that there's great wickedness. Great wickedness. We know in chapter 14 that God has been gracious to these people. Remember? He uses the one Abraham who has been chosen to bring blessing to all the families of the world, he uses him to bring blessing to the Sodomites as he brings them back from being taken off as slaves, right? By the four kings. He has been generous and gracious to them. But they wanted nothing of Abraham and his mighty God who rescued them. We know that God heard the cry of the oppressed. They came from these cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that God in his mercy, chapter 18, was willing to spare the whole bunch of these wicked people if there were just 10 righteous people. We know that. We know that their sin is sensual. It's sexual but it's far more. In Jude chapter 1, actually there's no chapters, it's just Jude, verse 7, we read this. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality. What that means is, that word immorality, any sex outside the covenant of marriage. They gave themselves up to sexual immorality, and to perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. But the sin of Sodom goes way beyond that. It's, it's not just sexual perversion. When Ezekiel writes about Sodom and the sins, or the prophet Isaiah, they're talking about things like pride. They're talking about gluttony. So this superiority, this 
this just selfishness, this complete indifference to the poor, oppressing the vulnerable. And so God brings his judgment. Fast forward, let's just read about the judgment. These are the kinds of things, if you're new to the Bible, they're stunning, they're striking. We don't like to read this. We wish it weren't in the text. But here's what it says, verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zoar, this is one of those cities, the sun had risen over the land. He leaves at the break of day. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. We don't know if that was an earthquake. We don't know exactly. All we know from the text is it came from heaven. It came from the Lord. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. This is hard, hard stuff. And so we remember God's mercy to these people going before this judgment. And we remember what the scriptures teach us. That God doesn't want any to perish, but all to experience eternal life. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God doesn't delight. He doesn't find pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, 9. He finds no pleasure in that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He desires all people to be saved. And so what we know from the storyline of the Bible is that God sends Jesus to suffer a violent death. That God is not a foreigner to evil and wickedness. Not in any way that he is attached to that but he is willing to suffer for that at the price of his own son. God alone rescues. God alone rescues. And so if God alone rescues, we are not to look for another savior. So let's look at the rescue in verses 12 through 22. The two men, right, these angels, said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. I thought it was a joke. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, that's Lot, when he hesitated, the men grasped his hands. The second time they grasped his hands, right? And the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Man, that just... Reminds me of an image. I've told this story before, but I remember climbing up Horn Peak, like 13,000, almost 14,000. And I'm up there with our little girls, Bridget and Laura, and they were little. They were like five and seven. And we're up there at the very top. We climbed it. It was awesome. And then in came a storm. 
And, and there was an electrical charge in the air. You could hear it crackling. I could see the girl's hair starting to stand up. And I'm thinking we are completely exposed and it, it is coming and we're in harm's way. And I grabbed those girls' hands and I asked a couple of guys to grab their outside hands and we ran. We ran off that mountain for shelter. And that's the image that we have here of the angels taking his hands and his wife's hands and the two daughters, right? They're all running out. Verse 17, as soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor, if your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. We don't know why. We know later in the chapter that the daughter's described as an old man. So maybe he's going, I just physically can't get there. Or is it like, He's just this city guy, and he's got to be near. We don't know. He's just saying, I can't make it to the mountains, but I can make it to that little place. That's what Zoar means. I can make it to that little place. Can, can, can I just get there and be saved from the destruction? Because if not, this disaster is going to overtake me, and I'll die. Verse 20, look. Here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. God in his grace. The angel speaking for him said, very well, I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. In other words, Zoar was supposed to be wiped out, but it's going to be spared because of Lot. A righteous man in the midst of that city going to be spared. But flee there quickly, verse 22, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. Now, here's what I want us to note. These are these really interesting reactions to God's warning, to the angel, to the message, whether it came from the angels, whether it came from Lot himself. And so we see the son-in-laws who think it's a joke. They, they laugh off their need for a savior. That's how we miss God's rescue. When we think it's a joke. What's a joke? My sin's a joke. The holiness of God. And like, I need a savior. Come on, man. What are you talking about? They're convinced that they don't need saving. They're convinced that there isn't a savior. They're convinced that this whole thing is, it's a joke. What are you talking about? They miss the rescue. And then there's Lot. I mean, the text is clear. He hesitates. Why does he hesitate? Because it was hard to leave that place. He's left some other places. We know in chapter 12, he's already left Haran. We know before that he left Ur. He's been leaving places and he went to this place. He kept moving into this place and he had a life in that place. He had security in that place and he, he was hesitating. And God in his grace, wow. Yanked him by the hand. There, there is no clear indication from the text that had they not done that, he would have ever left. Because we certainly know his wife wasn't pushing him out the door, right? And God was merciful for his plea to Zoar, not the mountains. And so God takes him by the hand through those angels and he flees. He does take God at his word, he and his two daughters. 
So the son-in-laws, they laugh. Lot, he hesitates. He stutters. He goes, ah, ah, ah. I don't know. And then there's Lot's wife. Here's what Jesus said about Lot's wife. Luke 17, 28 and following. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. It was, it was normal life. Life was good. Those are signs of prosperity, right? But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is talking about his second coming. Son of Man is an Old Testament title that Jesus used to, of himself. He's talking about the coming judgment. Jesus came for salvation to rescue us from judgment. But he says, when I'm coming back, I'm coming to judge. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. And here's the principle. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And so, it's very likely, we don't know it for sure, but most of the scholars believe that Lot married this woman from this city. So she was having even a harder time than Lot. He hesitates, but he gets out of the city and he never turns back. I remember growing up hearing this story and what I thought it was, was that she went like this. And she turned into a pillar of salt. Well, that certainly could have happened. But when we see Jesus explaining this, it's very likely that she turned around to go back in the city where she was covered in salt and brimstone and became like a statue under God's judgment. Jesus said she turned back to protect her life, to protect the life she had. But he says whoever loses their life, Jesus says, if you take up your cross and follow me, then you have life. So uh, just at this point, let me just ask a few questions. Is there any chance anyone listening to me now is laughing at God's gracious warning and saying, this is a joke. Man, all there is is today. It's not a big deal, this thing called sin. Maybe you're ignoring the conscience that God gave you so it's just dead. It's seared like the Bible says. And it's just, it's a joke. God's warning is a joke. The word of God is a joke. The pleadings of a spouse, of a friend, of a parent, it's, it's a joke. Anyone in the hesitation zone Oh, that we would be faithful to the Spirit's prodding to run. Oh, that we would be faithful friends to grab the hands of our kids, of our spouse, of our friends and say, come on, man, let's get out of here. We've got to get out of here. This isn't the way of life. This is the way that leads to destruction. 
Is there anyone looking back, turning back for what you once trusted in? Man, that's the temptation today. We've been rescued, and now we want to go back. She's out of the city. She's been delivered from the city. She's been rescued by God's grace. The angel's taken her by the hand, and she wants to go back to Sodom. And we're tempted to go back to the pill. We're to go back to that relationship, to go back to that bottle, to go back to whatever it is that we think would save us, that would give us life and meaning and happiness. Flee, don't turn back. Let's be faithful friends. The Bible story reminds us there is only one who can save us from God's judgment. There's only one who can rescue us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we're to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he's raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. God's judgment for all that is unholy. He didn't just pray for the city. He didn't just say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wished like a hen her chicks, I could have gathered you in his arms. He didn't just pray for Jerusalem. He didn't just pray for the people who were wicked and godly in that place who were rejecting him as God's great gift. He spread his arms on the cross and died for the city. He came to the city square and he saw it all and he came to be a ransom, a king who would die. And when evil men hated him and plotted his death, eyes weren't blinded. Angels didn't yank him back up to the safety of heaven. He was arrested. He was falsely tried. He was hung on a cross. He suffered unjustly, dying a violent death. The innocent son of God cursed to free us from the curse, mocked to remove our shame, crucified that we might live, taking all God's wrath on himself so through faith in him we could be made right before God, forgiven, cleansed, given life. The Bible says he who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And so the account kind of ends here in verse 29 where it began back in 18 where God and Abraham were looking down on the valley and now in 29, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham who in verse 27 got up and returned to the place, right, and looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, saw the smoke rising. He remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. End of the story. Oh, no, it's not. This, this is like, are you kidding me? This is the surprise. I mean, it seems like this would be a fitting end, but no, there's more. And it reminds us not only that we shouldn't laugh in the face of God's judgment or hesitate when the warnings sound or look to another Savior in the face of God's judgment. It reminds us that we every day need God's saving grace. 
Don't ever forget it. This is how the story ends. Verse 30, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. I don't know, maybe they heard that he was the reason everything got nuked around him. I don't know what it was. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. Oh, my word. What a picture. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old. There's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. And so day one, night one, the oldest daughter gets some drunk, sleeps with him. She's pregnant. Night two, the next daughter does it. And they give birth to two sons. Verse 37, the older daughter, a son named Moab. Moab sounds like the Hebrew for from father. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, means son of my father's people. He is the father of the Ammonites, who will become nemesis for God's people when they leave Egypt and come back into the land. Well, you can't make this stuff up. Lot is righteous. We know that he was tormented within his soul about the evil around him. And yet he was ineffective of making a difference even in his own family. Man, are you listening? Am I listening, Mark? He was disturbed about what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah in the valley. But he was ineffective because as the family comes out of Sodom, we realize Sodom is still in the family. His sons-in-law never left. They thought it was a joke. He had no influence in their lives that we can see in the text. His wife, she turns back. She cuts herself off from her man and goes back to her people. His daughters disgrace him. He's been rescued. The daughter's rescued. But in desperate need of God's grace. Oh, it's so easy, isn't it, to go, man, they're so bad. That's you and me. Rescued if we're followers of Christ by the grace of God. And every day we're reminded we need more grace and his grace is sufficient. There's always grace upon grace, James says. We need it. We need it. So I think Lot is this picture of the church. He's a picture of a lot of our lives. Righteous, but ineffective in being a change agent. Like Abraham, he was to bring the blessings of God to all the families. Where are we being ineffective? What is there in our city? Do, do we know? Do we know anybody whose life is marked by injustice? Have we heard the cries? Do, do we know that there are cries in our city? Do we know that? God calls Abraham and his family to do right, to do justice. That's what it looks like to walk with God. 
May we be a people who are salty and bright lights that point people to God and bring God's kingdom into their hearts, into their lives. Let's pray. Father God, this is a hard passage. It's full of fire and brimstone. It's full of people dying under your judgment. And yet we know it's a story of your grace, of your mercy. And ultimately, all of us are guilty before you, a holy God. And apart from you moving towards us with grace, the amazing thing is that we aren't all wiped out. Lord, there's a lot of lot in me. I have great sensitivities to the things that are wrong in this world. I have great sensitivity to things that are wrong in other people. And I don't walk humbly before you. I don't always do justice. I don't love mercy. Forgive me. Forgive us for being inattentive to the cries around us. Forgive us for not being salty. Forgive us for putting a bushel over the light. All oh, that we would be that light, that people would see our good works and glorify you in heaven, dear Father, as we live for you and love like you and serve and are people that are concerned about the very things that you are concerned about. We bless you that you alone are our Savior. And we say again together, there is no other. There is salvation in no other name but in Jesus Christ. And so we turn back to you for mercy. Keep us following you, Father. Give us the strength of your spirit to walk with you in great power and do great good in this world that honors you. In Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.